I'm Simon from Kent Libraries and this is On The Books, the library show born out of lockdown that talks about all things written word, thoughts, ideas, inspirations and much, much more. So sit back, relax and enjoy the conversation. Good morning, welcome to Canterbury Library. I'm with Julie Wasmer today. She is our crime author, resident of Whitstable, has worked in TV, and we're gonna talk about everything literature. So, hello Julie, and welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, Simon. It's really, really good to be doing this with you today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on. I'm really pleased that you agreed to do this. The, the, we've, we've started these now, there's a few of them rolled out, and, and so far they've proved to be very popular. I'm really glad that you're on the show. So, right, I like to start with a usually pretty, I, don't, I think it's quite a nasty question in some respects, but um, what book changed your life? Oh, wow, what a question. That's incredible. Um, I think books generally change our lives in many ways and at different periods of our life too, you know, I mean, um, the book that started me off, I suppose, writing in general and having a love of storytelling was something that I read when I was just four and a half. And it was a book about um, Joan of Arc. It was, it was quite extraordinary because I, I was an, a, a very early reader. Um, I'm an only child, so my mum had more um, time to spend with me. And I remember reading this story uh, and then going to school because um, I'd read it preschool and uh, the teacher saying, you know, what do you enjoy doing? And, and me saying, I really like to read. And she said, well, what do you read? And I said, I've read all about Joan of Arc. He said, <laughs> what have you read? And I said, well, this is this amazing lady who heard voices and became a soldier and went into war and then was burned to death. And I think the teacher thought, what on earth have I got here? But, you know, um, I think we're able to take on board those those tales, even if they're, uh, you know, they're, they're monumentally um, scary, even at that age. But I can remember that very clearly, the tale of Joan of Arc. And, and ever since, you know, at different periods in my life, different books have given me a, a perspective that I needed at that time, almost like a, a stepping stone to get me to a, another path. I'm sure a lot of people would say, um, to Kill a Mockingbird, yeah, um, okay. because of the, the moral code in there and the way that we, we all seem to be able to identify with Scout, you know, as, as a child, it's a, it's a children, it, well, it's, it's seen from the perspective of children and, and gives us all that innocence, you know, that maybe we leave behind. And then in other respects, you know, um, Great Expectations has always stuck with me. And I think that's because the whole theme of social mobility in it resonated with me as soon as I read it, you know, coming from a very poor area in, in the East End of London, growing up in the 50s and 60s. Um, but at that time, being able to access education, you know, I was one of two girls in my school that passed the 11 plus, that sent us to quite a posh grammar school. Um, which was seen as like, you know, this incredible achievement at the time, especially by my family, you know, who they really wanted me to, to get on. Um, but of course, there was always that distance 
um, that the social mobility created and that chance of education. In order to get to that um, school, I would take the number eight bus every morning, probably only about a 20 minute journey, half an hour journey into kind of Liverpool Street in the city of London. Yep. Um, but that journey itself, the physical journey, was not as great as the actual journey that was um, <laughs> I was undertaking because it was separating me from all my other schoolmates and in some respects from my family too, you know, because uh, that's what education can do. So I think Pip's journey in Great Expectations has always stuck with me because of the central problem that he faces in that. That makes a lot of sense. And I completely get what you mean about social mobility. Personally, I'm, I'm from a working class background. Um, I, I was very lucky to be one of the first in my family to go to university. Um, my parents hadn't, my parents' parents never had. Um, I studied quite a, a prestigious degree, but it can be quite isolating because the people I grew up with were not the people I ended up spending a lot of time with. So I get entirely what you mean. In fact, actually, I was looking at, he was a bow in the East End that you were brought up in, wasn't it? Um, yes. And I believe that you said that your dad was very into making sure you were educated, which yes. does lead me to my next question, because I've done a little bit of research, is <laughs> <laughs> what do libraries mean to you? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, talking about my dad, you know, not uh, when with your with your first question, you know, about the importance of that, of a book, my father also signed up as you did in those days, you know, the fifties and sixties to, um, a, a guy came to the door one day selling encyclopedias and my dad bought these encyclopedias. I've still got one on, on my top shelf up there called the book of knowledge. And I just went all throughout those, you know, about 10, at least 10 of them and and you know they've lasted me throughout my life i mean that was that was just extraordinary because of course they're a compendium of all knowledge um yeah. and my dad um as i say he was he was very much a self-educated man he was a trade unionist and um you know supported all his men he got the british empire medal when posthumously um wow. and he placed a lot of importance on education and educating me and me sticking at school of course i rebelled against all of that um <laughs> you do and then I went back to education afterwards I wanted to do it um, on my own terms but when so I left school after my O levels and, and and said that's it I don't want to study I don't want to do this for you you know and and it was a, a, a particularly difficult time of my life you know certain things were going on and um, I was I was troubled but but the first job that I did was as a, a junior librarian in Whitechapel Library um, which was right next door to the art gallery there as well which is absolutely fantastic um, and that was I was 18 17 18 years old um, about, about 17 and in 1970 71 I think um, so that was roughly about 26 years after the last war had ended yeah, and that particular area was very densely populated by many members of the Jewish community yeah, of course um, lots of whom had um, you know gone there to escape the horrors of concentration camp during the last war um, 
And I think recognising that a public library has to serve the needs of its com um, community. Um, Whitechapel Library at that time was home to one of the largest collections of Yiddish books in Europe. It yeah, was really extraordinary. Um, working there represented, I think, um, a sanctuary to me at the time. You know, the, the, the one joy that I've always had is returning to books. Um, and, you know, probably because I'm an only child too, I occupied myself with, with reading all along. But um, I was really proud to spend every working day there in that environment. Um, the scientist, um, Jacob Bronofsky, Yep. Okay. He, he, he was a former student at my school, Central Foundation, and he had taught himself English before he went on to create his series, um, The Ascent of Man. It was you know, an incredible um, programme, that. Um, the artist, Mark Gertler, he also um, went there. He borrowed books on art and he drew on notebooks of paper there. Um, who else? We had the playwright Arnold Wesker. He had been another student at my school. Um, he went there often too. I think um, he'd he'd all. I think he may have even done a lot of learning. Um, no, I, I think it was part of his family, you know, learning to, to speak English there. And the poet, Bernard Copps, admitted he had educated himself in Whitechapel Library. It became known, in fact, as the University of the Ghetto. It was an <laughs> extraordinary place. And Bernard Copps actually um, wrote a poem in which he claimed, um, the door to the library is a door into me. Right. But, you know... And that's exactly what libraries do, I think. You know, subsequently from working there and since, I've always felt that libraries are a door into us all because they're not just a place for borrowing books, you know, lending books. I mean, I know some politicians may sometimes say that's what they're for and now everybody buys them online and you don't need to go to a library because, of course, the price of books has come down too. But, you know, libraries... They serve all sorts of functions. You know, they're safe community spaces for children. Um, I was a, you know, what you would call a latchkey, a latchkey child in those days, because both my parents worked. So I come home from school. I need a safe place to go. If I didn't have a relative around, I'd go to the public library. Yep. Um, and obviously these days, of course, they're a place where you can go and gain computer skills if you don't have a computer to access yourself. Um, I have a late friend of mine, Richard Stainton, who lived in Whitstable. He was a former teacher and a campaigner for, for libraries, which, you know, we did together at some point in, in Whitstable. And he always said public libraries are a marker of a healthy and civilised community. And I say amen to that. It's quite a, a little bit disingenuous for those people who are watching this that we've known Judy for a long time and she has been a real ardent supporter of the libraries. That question was a little bit of a, 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 <laughs> a bit of a, a, of a, I won't lie, but I do agree with you. We have, I mean, obviously working in a library myself, we have changed um, our offer, changes all the time. We try and modernise. We aren't just a place for books. We are a place mm. for for havens for computers for all sorts of things um yeah and those people that say that books are irrelevant yeah i'm gonna likely disagree with them <laughs> yeah i mean i must admit I've, I've not even i've not graduated to um to kindle yet you know it's still for me it's 
a physical book it's the smell of it it's um the cover it's you know just the size of the print everything and of course as an author too you know i spend an awful lot of time indoors on my own in front of a laptop writing um and the joy for me when a, when one of my books comes out is that usually when we're not in a global pandemic that's the time that i i can actually meet with my readers and and really get to to know them to talk to them and to find out what it is they like about the books what they don't like about the books too and you cannot sign a kindle i love signing books for people but you can't sign a kindle the day that they can do that maybe i'll uh, i'll upgrade <laughs> no that's fair i completely understand that i mean I, I personally do own a kindle i think they do have their place um i will speak about devices with you later actually um it's it's an interesting quirk but you can't beat books i mean i'm surrounded by them why, why i would say that wouldn't i really building up on what you your education you did your degree in english and history um well I, somebody has to do no i'm, I'm only joking uh, but you went from that into tv production um so as a writer, you started off um, writing um, for television and episodes, and I believe that you've been quoted as saying um, it was storytelling without the baggy bits. Um, <laughs> so how, did, how did you fall into doing that? Well, I, I'd always written, you know, moving on from a love of books and stories as a child, you know, I, I very quickly began to write my own stories as a kid, and, um, and it was something that I'd always done very well in at school you know english and composition writing writing poems in the east end i don't know if it's elsewhere but you know we used to have story writing competitions run by the rspca you know you'd write a story about uh, an animal of some kind and and i'd win them which was you know it, 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 extraordinary because it would be of a very large area in the east end and i'd get a scroll and my mum would put it up on the wall and and it was just something that I enjoyed doing and obviously you know I could do well at it and it was good so I always felt confident that I could write you know from a very early age because I got good feedback at school okay and then um, when I did my degree I, I saw that as three years forget the history part but there again you know at school the subjects that I did well in were languages yep. because okay. It's the word again and it's communicating so i did french spanish german latin at school and and enjoyed all of that and then history to me as a child was great because it was just more stories <laughs> it was incredible characters and great stories they just happened to be real people similarly um what we we then called religious instruction or scripture Right. It's the same. I, the Bible was just full of all these stories, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. I could remember those people um, and, and every part of their narrative. So that formed the basis of my education. And so by the time I went to university, I saw those three years really as almost therapeutic. I didn't have a, an idea what I wanted to do at the end of it, but I just saw that somehow at the age of 21 which then was kind of like a mature student i got a full grant and yep. you know it was wonderful i could actually spend three years reading books and plays and poetry and really enjoy myself and that's exactly what i did and then i came i came out of uni with my degree 
and having read these fabulous novels, everything, and thought, oh, I'll be a writer. <laughs> and in no time, you know, of being trying to write a novel, but uh, being unemployed, I was finally drafted in by, by my local Department of Health and Social Security to take a job with them. And they said, if you don't take it, you'll, you'll be refusing, it will be classed as refusing suitable employment because you're a graduate. So I went to work for them for wow. about two years. And I really was a round peg in a square hole or vice versa. Um, I, I, I just couldn't get on with um, a nine to five job, even though it was on flexi time. I, <laughs> I spent all my time doing the job that nobody at that time in that department wanted to do, which was being the receptionist and dealing wow. with people's problems because I love people. Yes. And I think that's another reason why I enjoy writing. You know, I'm, I'm perpetually fascinated, enthralled. I love people. Um, even a villain, you know, you love to hate a villain. I, I, I find nothing boring about people, I, you know. So, um, so all of the writing kind of got um, sidelined. And then eventually I got a job with the BBC. Yes. Basically, it's just a production secretary working in radio. But I worked in drama and I did everything there, including um, sound effects. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I'd be in the sand pit doing all that for a play and and also sorting out with the BBC library of sound effects the, the correct sound of a train in Ruritania at a certain time to, to go behind the prisoner of Zender. All of that. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. I did all aspects of... Um, of um, you know, working in radio drama at that time, news, everything, you know, editing the lot, editing yep. for the world at one, etc. Um, and then I went traveling for quite some time, for five years on a boat. Uh, I've never been on a boat before. I'm a, you know, inner city London kid, yeah, but yeah. I, I found myself on this 50 foot ocean going um, yacht and traveled all around on that. And then I came back to London and I'd met somebody while I'd been on the island of Menorca, which is really a great place for, for sailing. Um, it's called uh, Isla de las Vientas, you know, Isle, Isle of Winds. Yeah. And I met someone there who worked in commercials. And she said, um, it'd be great to, for you to come, when you, when you come back, when you finish sailing, come and work for our company that made commercials. And so I went to work there. I did all sorts of things. I, I was the casting director at one point. We did a a video for Peter Gabriel. Oh, right, okay. All sorts of things, really. Yeah, I've you? worked in pubs, I've been a waitress in restaurants, all sorts of things. It's all grist to a writer's <laughs> mill, I think. And then they actually wanted to get into doing drama, right? producing okay. drama. And they knew that I'd written lots of short stories. So they asked if I could turn a short story into a short film script. Right. Because Channel 4 and British Screen, who at that time, you know, was a, a big film funding body in this country, um, were offering the chance of um, 12 minute short films to find new writing and directing talent. Yep. So I wrote a screenplay and extraordinarily it got accepted. <laughs> it was rejected first. I got the reject. We got the rejection letter, and I thought, well, you know, I know about rejection because some of my short stories have been rejected, etc. 
And, uh, and then suddenly they got an invitation to go in for a production meeting. And they said, but this has been rejected. And they said, oh, no, that must have been a mistake. So it was doubly <laughs> exciting. <laughs> and we got, um, it was all done properly, you know, um, all proper rates, equity rates, the whole lot, union rates. And they gave us £90,000 right. to make a 12-minute film, for, which went out on Channel 4. And just from that 12-minute film, people got to, uh, the word must have gone round in the industry. And then people said, oh, you know, would you like to write this and that? And then somebody said, can I introduce you to an agent, a new agent that was setting up? And shortly after that, I got, um, I got asked to join EastEnders. And I, I stayed there for almost 20 years, doing other programmes too. But you'd then have to take a break from EastEnders go off and do London's Burning for ITV or there was a series called Family Affairs on Channel 5 right. and a kind of precursor of Holby for Granada that was called Medics so okay. and writing for TV was fabulous because it really taught me about structure I'd always been quite good at well say quite good you know but <laughs> I hadn't found any difficulties with writing dialogue and characters yeah. and especially you know at that time I was mainly writing comedy and black comedy yeah um, but my problem was always structure and I tend not to like rules I always think rules are for breaking so um, I was always struggling a bit I never wanted to do any of those courses that you know people do these days you know they do seminars and everything on screenwriting and the rules of it all I just didn't want to do that I wanted to learn by my own mistakes but what writing for a series like EastEnders taught me was the real importance of, of structure and of course in in something like a continuing series like EastEnders, you never have a beginning, a middle and an end because you have your cliffhanger. So although you may have some kind of arc within your 30 minute episode, in fact, it's the never ending story, isn't yeah. it? It can't ever end because if it does, the programme ends. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> that kind of leads me on to, to where I want to go next, which is you talk about character and um, the Whistable Pearl mystery series is really driven by character. You, you write character. Um, so I'm curious, where, where did Pearl come from? What was, what was the genesis of, of Pearl Nolan? Well, Pearl is, I'm, you know, for a very long time, I'd, I'd wanted to write crime novels because from my time, you know, the importance of visiting my, my library in Tower Hamlets, I remember there was one rainy summer when I was about 11 or 12 where I discovered I spent most of my time in the public library that summer uh, where I discovered Agatha Christie and I then went through all of them that summer and um, and then I discovered Dorothy L Sayers and I really became hooked on on the crime the whodunit yeah. genre but I guess what you would describe those books as uh, were the, it's part of the golden age of detective fiction as they're known as yeah, the classic English whodunit and so in the back I've always loved the whodunit you know I think the whodunit is popular for all sorts of reasons but one of the reasons is because you know life is full of uncertainties but you always know when you pick up a whodunit that by the final page you will know who did it so yeah. so i think they do offer a certainty uh, in uncertain times um but 
I had tried to write a crime novel and I'd never really um, established a proper protagonist, a hero what? or heroine. I'd been writing um, male private eyes and then I, I tried it with a, a, a male police detective. Yeah. And I just didn't feel comfortable walking around in their shoes. And that's what I think you always have to do as a writer. Yeah. You always have to truly believe that character that you're writing, you know, the, uh, how authentic they are. If you don't, you know, you're always going to be in trouble. You put them in the wrong place because you really don't understand them and their motivation and what they want. Yeah, okay, that um, makes sense. So finally, um, I was living in Whitstable. And when I'd moved here in 1999, I... It appeared to me as, and I've been living in London for years be, um, before that, suddenly I thought I'm in the kind of small town <laughs> that suits the, the detective genre, you know, the, the, the local church, St Alfred's Church, you know, the, the local butcher, Theobald's, everything about it, this small community. Yeah. And I absolutely knew that this would make a fantastic setting for a crime novel you know this uh, ostensibly very calm pool into which a pebble is thrown and the, the ripples <laughs> yeah. flow out you know um and that was obviously murder that was that pebble was murder i really fell in love with whitstable right and i wanted very much to um not to fictionalize this town either so i then realized that what i wanted to write was um a book in which we had a main protagonist, but in which the location itself formed another leading role, if you like. Makes perfect. But then I realised that Pearl literally had to be a Whitstable native. You know, I always find that if you're having trouble coming up with your characters, always think about who they are, where they are, and the answers will come to you. She then had to be a Whitstable native. And then we do have a certain kind of tension here between the native Whitstabolians, as I call them, yeah. and the DFLs, the Down from Londoners. Oh, so yes. close to London. <laughs> people have moved down here like me. Um, and then I thought, well, actually, if I make, you know, if my main protagonist is a woman, I will identify with that more. Yeah. Um, I, I put Pearl as a woman in her late 30s, you know, approaching 40, with empty nest syndrome. Her son Charlie is going off to college. She's run a restaurant called the Whitstable Pearl for 20 years, yeah. you know, while she's been bringing up Charlie. And now she's in that kind of empty nest syndrome, wondering if she can actually resurrect old dreams. Mm. She had wanted to be a police officer when she was young. If you ask yourself all these questions, finally this character appears. Yes. And then I thought the foil would be to create a DFL character with whom she constantly bumps heads. She comes into contact with him, but she also comes into conflict with him. And that's DCI Mike Maguire. So he is the foil. You know, they are yeah. two sides of the same coin. And because they're male and female, there is this frisson between them too. It's, and then the, the cliffhanger element came in, obviously, from writing for continuing TV series. The will they, won't they love affair. You know, are they going to or aren't they? And murder is there. So... Although the books serve up the answer to readers in the form of who done the murder, you never quite know whether Pearl and Maguire are really yeah. going to get together. Whether it's actually going to work for them. Uh, I mean, the joys of them are, I mean, I'm, I'm not from Canterbury, but I'm from Kent. 
um, and I've lived in this area sort of most of my life. Uh, the joy of it is, is when you do pick up the books and you go, I know that place, I know there, that's, 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 I, I've walked down that street, I, I've looked at the Neptune, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a nice, if you're local, they're wonderful for that, that, that just sort of sense of, this is my area, because I suppose when you get like Morse and you get the other ones with a just set within, you, they must get the same, it's like Oxford is Oxford and you know, um, Lewis on TV makes quite a lot self-referential to the fact that it's just Oxford again. So it is always nice when you get somewhere that is real, that something's based in, and that isn't just historical fiction, because you get a lot of real historical fiction, but, but I know that sounds weird, real historical <laughs> fiction, but, but um, the, the locations do make it for someone who is from the area. That is wonderful to actually, um, to, to experience, which does lead me on quite nicely. It's almost like we segued into this uh, about the fact it's now being put into production as a TV series. The isn't it the first two books are being combined? Is that what is that correct? Yeah, it's a TV series. Uh, the books were optioned um, by Buccaneer. There's a, a fantastic production company who make the series Marcella with Anna Friel. Yeah, and they optioned the books. Um, the CEO, um, Tony Woods, um, is a Kent man and he knew Whitstable and he totally, totally understood, you know, the importance of location in the books. And I think he wanted to celebrate it too. Um, so they took the option out on the books and now it's actually gone into production, um, which is a real feat, you know, at this time. There's so many, so, you know, tight COVID regulations, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but it's gone into production and it will be out next year, 2021. Um, and it's starring Kerry Godleman, who's yeah. absolutely fantastic as, as Pearl, um, who was in um, Ricky Gervais's Afterlife. Yes, yes. And was. for a, you know, a TV writer who worked so many years on continuing drama series, then got out of that and started to write books. And now those books are becoming a TV series. It's this wonderful full circle of events i you know it's it's absolutely thrilling so i i have to pinch myself to really believe that it that it's happening um and it's happening in our town because of course i didn't fictionalize the setting um the location of the books and the series is is whitstable so the filming's going on around us for 13 weeks until you know sometime in january um as very exciting. I have to say, because obviously I work in Whitstable Library as well, we work in the district, I have seen them, I've seen where they've created the police station, they filmed outside. <laughs> yes. it's, it's been quite fun to actually watch the, the production in, in play, um, which does sort of lead me to how, you know, you sort of touched on it with the, you're now on the other side, because obviously you were a TV writer and now there's someone playing with your baby to put it on TV. Yeah. Um, how did you find the adaption process? Were you involved in the adaption process? Um, did you get a say? I'm curious. I've never known how that works. Well, Buccaneer have always been very good um, and consulted with me and been very inclusive and, and, and sought my opinions and everything. Um, and I absolutely understand, you know, from working in TV, what a collaborative process it is, you know. When I worked on EastEnders, we we had so many people on that show. You know, apart from thirty or forty freelance writers, mm. we would have series editors, storyline editors, story editors, producers, executive producers. You know, a, a whole host of people um, 
and so I, I totally understand, you know, that um, it's a collaborative process. So I, in, in no way, really, have I ever felt that these are my books as such. Okay. Even, you know, with readers, I've always considered that they're Whitstable's books, especially, you know, Whitstable is a, um, a wonderful small community, 40,000 people here, you know, including in the environs, but, um, but you do feel that you know everybody. And we are all very interconnected because of social media. There are, you know, literally hundreds of community Facebook pages, etc. It's, it's true. So, um, so, you we, know, if you don't know somebody physically, you certainly know them online. Yeah. Um, and um, so because of that, um, I have always sort of thought of the books as Whitstable's books. Um, I'm just thinking, who was it? It was um, Somerset Maugham referred to Whitstable as Blackstable in his books. He he said, uh, he mentions his time living here when he had to come and live with um, an uncle who was a rather austere vicar. Yeah. And he, he wrote about this town, I think because he had rather unhappy time here. He referred to it as Blackstable. And um, I never ever thought of, of doing that, of colouring uh, yeah. the location. I always wanted to pay tribute to Whitstable. And I think that's what the series is going to do too. But in terms of um, ownership of the books, you know, I see this very much as our project. Right. Okay. And that's the companies involved, the cast and um, the crew. You know, I, 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 I've met them, they're wonderful. And I'm really happy to hand this to them and I understand that it has to be a kind of you know launch of something else of somebody else's ideas and so from that point of view I'm just looking I'm really looking forward to just um, viewing it like everybody else you know and being surprised <laughs> too and so it's six um, hour-long episodes we've got four fabulous writers uh, the lead writer was Oyston Carlson who did Lilyhammer, he's uh, Norwegian based. Um, we've also got Rachel Flowerday, who does Father Brown and yep. uh, Mallory Towers. Alastair Galbraith does Doc Martin and Mike Walden, who's also written uh, Marcella. So those four writers basically have taken on all six episodes. And there are some custom written episodes within there, but embracing the other two novels, because it would have been an impossibility to have actually used six books, you know, just for, for 30 minutes. They'd never have fitted in. It would never have um, done the stories justice. So, so no. I'm looking, looking forward to um, being <laughs> a viewer. It's interesting. We're in the world of the internet, and you know, um, it's always curious where fan and I don't mean to belittle fandom because I'm not going to because I'm a fan for many many things myself where they get such a sense of ownership that if anything is remotely changed it suddenly becomes you know there are some very toxic fans out there there are some very wonderful ones out there just to calm the boat on this one um, it's interesting how someone produces something they put it out to the public and then the public embraces it and takes an ownership of it in their own way um, yes. almost completely separate from what the author or the writer or whatever medium it is intended yes. because it becomes personal to them. It is interesting how that all then butts up and crashes when you have to have medias that change and convert over to one another or, or I mean, a really good example is I'm a massive fan of Lord of the Rings. I have right. read 
every year. Um, I, I'm one of those. I'm a bit like um, uh, Christopher Lee. And I've, I've ever since <laughs> ever first ever given it, I've reread it. And then obviously when Peter Jackson did the films, there was like, oh, what's he going to change? And I was of the opinion, well, you can't put it on screen. Not as it is. It just doesn't work. So, so you make the changes to make it work. And I still loved watching my, you know, what I'd grown up with um, go off onto screen. So I get what you're saying about you're looking forward to having that moment where you get to see what someone else has done with, with what you've initiated, but it's, it's a collaborative effort. That's really quite, quite interesting to hear, actually. Yeah, and I think, um, I think for a lot of writers, um, if they're authors, they, I can understand why they feel ownership of their their stories um, and I think that's because that you have a greater autonomy really over um, a novel that you've written I don't get half as many notes I get hardly any notes at all um, from my editor and publishing director of my books but in when you write TV drama you might get notes from all of those people that I mentioned don't you know the the, the, the series editor the storyline editor by the time you've got all those you know you can literally have to rewrite an episode and sometimes you know rewrites would go to to nine times you know you'd have nine drafts in some cases um, and then you'd return to what you had in the beginning <laughs> taking it down all this so you realise that by that time, so many people are giving input into it, that it's not really your baby. This is a project. You've been hired to do something and you do it as best you can. And often there are real problems, obstacles to what you want to put in a, to a TV episode. It might be that, you know, literally the, the cast member is, is ill or you don't have a location or you have to suddenly change a storyline at very short notice, but you learn to to think on your feet, to, to find lateral thinking solutions to all of those things. With a novel, that, that doesn't happen because you're, you're on your own most of the time writing, that, yes. as long as it takes. And then there's usually a publishing deadline. But even so, the notes that come are, are, far, are far fewer. And for me, they've been far less fundamental. Yes. So, but my previous experience has learnt um, has learned for me to take a back seat and to understand I'm part of a larger process and not get too precious about things. And also, what's really important is to trust the judgment of the people you've entrusted your yeah. work to. You yeah. know, I didn't have to sign up to with Buccaneer, but I did because I trust them and I respect them. So why wouldn't I trust that they can take this forward and and improve it and make it better? I'm, I, you know, it's a very exciting process. It's definitely exciting. I mean, we are really looking forward to it. I mean, it's always nice when you get that 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 buzz for for something that's like say local and and it's gonna you're gonna recognise and it's going to be going out there to other people. That's always exciting. So so I'm, I'm yeah, we're really looking forward to the TV series. Um, you've answered this kind of, but I'm going to be a bit more explicit with it. So. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? Because you said you've written forever, basically. It's funny, isn't it? Um, probably from the age of nine or ten, I think. I think when I was doing really well at school and, you know, teachers were just saying, you know, this is great, you know. I, 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 it had to have been from that time that those teachers just imbued in me, you know, you can do this. and um, And I enjoyed it. I never... You know, I, 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 
writing's always been something that I've returned to, even when I haven't been thinking about mm. projects to sell. You know, I, I, for five years on a boat, I, I, I wrote all the time. I've written diaries all my life and, and everything else. And I think in many ways, writing has also been um, therapeutic to me. You know, it's, it's me yep. putting words on a page and expressing myself and being able to read things back um, and often seeing where my thinking might be faulty or right. especially if I've written about something that's happening in, happened in my life, I can go back and retrace steps and understand myself more in that process of what happened at that time. That actually leads me quite nicely into <laughs> another question I have. Um, it's almost like we planned this, but it really isn't the case. No. <laughs> Mental health. Um, yeah. really key factor now um, much more recognized in the in, in now than it was when I was growing up um, especially in light of COVID and the lockdowns that we've undergone and the changes to our lives um, so where do you think writing or the written word or reading or literature has a place in our mental health do you think it can promote positive mental health does it have a place I've written at times of um, difficulty in my life. You know, it's been therapeutic and also reading has. You know, you don't have to be a writer to read. That's the important thing as well to take away from this. And when I, I, I do talks, you know, I've done talks for schools um, about coming from the East End, basically, and being in a, you know, a, a position now, which is, 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 is really wonderful, but coming from very humble um, beginnings, and just, it's, you know, it's not, my husband is a builder, and yeah. he has people to help him, and he needs bits of wood, and nails, and he needs money to get those materials, and all sorts of things, but to, in order to be a writer, all you need is this and and that yeah. and nothing more than a piece of paper or a laptop or or a phone these days and so when i do these talks at school sometimes kids say oh i can't write i i i, I can't come up with stories or whatever and i say really and they say yeah no i can't do it i can't um, have a go at this project or whatever that i set them and then i say well you know have you never come up with an excuse to your teacher here of why you're late or why you were doing this or to your parents and they say oh yeah you know cheeky kid or something oh yeah i came up with a good one there and i said well an excuse it's a story, it's, a, it's, another, it's just another example of you using your imagination in a vivid way that, um, and you've created a story and so you can do it. I do fear that when, um, when I look at kids these days, you know, they, they're not like me when I was a kid, I could go off to the local park with a, a notebook and pen, I could draw or I, I could just come mm. up with a story. Nowadays, kids seem to be very focused on their computers and, um, and all of that is fine. Because remember, when I started writing too, we never had, I never had a computer. I'd have to go and research something down at the library for weeks or, or order a book and have to read it all. Now, you know, information is, is all online it's fantastic if you're a writer but it it does um it does worry me that that maybe children these days don't think that they have the capacity mm. to write um yeah. and even if it's a diary what i've done with kids sometimes is 
Um, I said, do you ever write a diary? They say, no, you know, nothing ever happens. So I say, okay, well, what about if we write a fantasy diary? What about if you write today's entry of what you wanted, what you want to happen and dream it into possibilities? And when we've done that, you know, it's been massively therapeutic. One little boy said, when I said, you could write down that something's happened and you could have everything that you want today, what would it be? I mean, some kids have said, I'll have um, a gold Lamborghini. <laughs> One kid yeah. said, uh, I'm going to, the, the next kid said, well, I'm gonna have all the gold Lamborghinis in the world. And I said, well, why? You can't drive them all, can you? The other kid said, I'm going to have a gold toilet. And I said, why? Do you do gold poos? <laughs> but another child said, I would like to buy my my grandpa um, a, a proper workshop, and I said, "What a lovely thing!" And he and then he said, "Yeah, he's got cancer," and he said he loves making things, and he suddenly opened up that kid about what he would write, you know, that he really wanted that day, and. I think that's wonderful in terms of a release for him because he suddenly, you know, he hadn't been engaging in that um, in that kind of classroom at all that day. But then having got that out, we were able to talk about the power of the imagination, about moving us towards what we may want in life. And that's the other thing. You know, it isn't all about success and money and having a gold Lamborghini. If we can put on paper, you know, our dreams and aspirations, then it's not so much about aspiring to have something, it's aspiring to be something. And I'd like all kids to know that they can aspire to be something. And if they want to be a writer, they can do it. Like if I can do it, other kids can do it too. Um, I can't. I agree with you more wholeheartedly, actually. Um, you said some very, some very interesting things that resonate quite strongly with me. Um, I believe that our education system destroys our creativity. It, it strips it out. Um, or you were quite lucky. You, you had teachers that encouraged you and said you were a really good writer. I remember in the 80s, so I started secondary school in 89, um, and I was massively into art and creative writing. And all I got was, well, that won't get you a job. You know, it's it's that that sort of the only thing that's important is a job and money and you know, and I think you're right with what you're saying about kids now with well, well people full stop. We are so connected in the modern era, so so connected, but our imaginations aren't fired. It's done yeah. for us. We're not we're not given the chance to imagine or breathe or learn yeah. that way because it's all presented and you just accept it. Now, maybe I'm being cynical here, but I do think there's an element of that. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if you don't have much, I didn't have anything in the East End. You know, I grew up in a, um, in a, basically a condemned slum and I never even had a bedroom. You know, we, we, we had two and a half rooms, really. Right. My parents had moved in, you know, temporarily with, um, uh, with a relation who, who allowed them to have the top part of a house. 
So until I was 17 years old, I, 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 I slept on the sofa. I never had a room of my own. So I never had possessions. I didn't have anywhere to put them. And yeah. actually, that's been very good for me because I don't crave possessions. I actually feel um, my husband is, is the opposite, but only in terms of him being a hoarder. So he completely fills the house up with things. <clears throat> but then he didn't have many toys as a kid either. He grew up in um, you know, the Greek part of Cyprus, as it was then. Um, so if you don't have anything, you are forced to use your imagination to summon those things um, for yourself. And when I read books, you know, we never went on holiday anywhere. We, we did go a few times on holiday to the Isle of Sheppe. I didn't know that that's where Lays Down was until um, I moved here. And then I realized, oh, wow, that's where we went on holiday in the caravan. But my parents, you know, they never left the country at all. You know, they never had a passport. Um, but I learned that by reading books, I could go off to the Mediterranean, even reading Agatha Christie books, you know, Death on the Nile, you'd yeah. be there with the py pyramids, you know, as a 10 or 11 year old or uh, Murder on the Orient Express. I could go to all these places and I still love books that um, have some, a, a really strong sense of location. You know, I love Venice, but I'd only gone to Venice about three years ago. But the books of Donna Leon that meant that I knew Venice yeah. intimately. Yeah. That's using your imagination, really. You, you're forced to do so. I mean, obviously, if you've got a great writer like Donna Leon, it's, it's very easy once you're reading it to be there in Venice with all the smells, the sights, <laughs> everything, the atmosphere. But um, but I think sometimes that the more the more things we have in terms of possessions, the less we actually have. The less you have, the more you are forced to dream things up for yourself, including ambitions and what and what we can do. And there's nothing there's nothing like saying I don't have anything, but I'm now going to set off. I can still dream of having something, and that's the spur of your ambition. I was also very lucky though in the 50s and 60s that at that time, you know, I, I think I passed my 11 plus 1964 right. and this was just when the Beatles were coming out, swinging yeah. 60s, yeah. Yeah, you know we had Harry Wilson was just coming into power, so I had quite, I had long-haired um, <laughs> drama teachers, you know, um, they were teachers who wanted to come down and teach underprivileged kids yeah. in the East End. And, and, and so that really helped, you know, they had this real ambition to push us forward. Um, and so, you know, we did, um, I did some acting, you know, um, Hecate, I was Hecate in um, Macbeth at Toynbee Theatre and all sorts of things. It was an exciting time. But yes, I totally agree that schools and, and, and universities are now very much businesses. You know, they are selling commodities really in the form of degrees and mm. they're being purchased by all the students that are, are paying their money and want a proper result at the end of it. It's the commodification of, of education really. Um, things have changed, you know, I, I, I don't know much that isn't a commodity these days, a, a case of, you know, you pay for that and then you can have it. Everyone is a consumer. That, that is, um, we could go on a political rant, but I probably should not. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask you a question, which I think is cruel, 
but I really am fascinated by the answers. So if there is any book that you wish you could have written, what would it be and why? Oh, wow, that's, that's so difficult. That's um, I like asking it. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I veer, you know, from different books all the time. At di I mean, only, um, only yesterday I started again on my Truman Capote. Oh, right, yeah, um, okay. Reader. Um, yeah. I haven't read this since the 80s, but I loved in here, um, you know, I love his short stories, but also there's a, something he wrote called The Grass Harp that I just think right. is beautiful prose for all sorts of reasons. There are so many books. It will be like choosing, you know, a favorite member of your family or favorite <laughs> one of my cats, but it's, I don't think that there is one. I mean, in many ways, if I was doing a Desert Island disc yeah, and yeah. I had one book, it would have to be Dickens. Okay. Um, it would have to be one of Dickens' novels because to me, they, they resonate so strongly with me because of the characters, because of the narrative, but also because he was, lots of people say to me, Julie, you're mainstream and I am mainstream. I, I know that I am, but so was Dickens. And I'm sure that if Dickens was alive now, he would be writing fantastic episodes for continuing TV series or whatever. So probably thinking if I was forced, if my hand was forced, I probably would say great expectations. That's a perfectly good answer. I like that answer a lot. Dickens is an interesting one because everyone forgets that Dickens was a serial novelist. He wrote, yes. yeah. he didn't write novels. He wrote uh, in sections and they were consumed. I mean, it's, it's interesting with Dickens because we look at him with a reverence now. Now, now past his time, you know, he is held up as this great literary, and he is, there's no denying that he is this great literary figure. It doesn't make me wonder if he ever thought it himself. You know, if anyone who's ever writing, the, the big names that, that, that seem to have resonated through history, if ever at any point they got the inkling that, that this would carry on. I think there's a Doctor Who episode, now this is really sad, mm. which shows my geekiness, about <laughs> Agatha Christie actually, where, it's it's all about meeting Agatha Christie, and the the the, the punchline of it at the of the episode is that her writing is never stopped being read through human history. You know, they they produce a book that's published like three thousand years yeah. later, and it's still you know she's still being read. Um, it's it's interesting. I think we are storytellers. Human beings are storytellers. As you were saying earlier, about we make excuses and stuff like that, and I, novelization in some respects creates this idea that it's special people that can do storytelling which isn't true but it does make me wonder if, if you ever have a sense of wow my work is going to be there well yours will be anyone who's written anything now with digital storage it will be there for as long as we can, can pull them back that's gonna be an amazing feeling yeah it, it is I mean coming back to what you said earlier about mental health and 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 the written word too um the importance of storytelling you know what storytelling does is it binds us too. you know telling stories to one another even from a very young age you know from from kids the nursery rhymes that you, you will say to a child to, to to placate them or to give them a sense even of the meter of poetry whatever um all of all of this this um the sharing of common experience of telling you, I'll tell my story, you tell my, this idea that we can uh, better understand one another is crucial. I mean, that's what storytelling um, does so much, I think. And that's why, you know, you, you could say that lots of um, 
continuing series on TV, you know, the, they rely on issues, that sometimes they're issue driven, but so much of the time, if they've been dealing with domestic abuse, alcoholism or whatever, obviously that's a help to people, but so, uh, so are novels about um, issues today. And, and just that, that sense that we are communicating with one another, another every time we write a book or we write a short story or a poem, it doesn't yeah. matter what it is. Um, and that this is a collaborative thing too. You know, it isn't just a case of readers and writers, mm. hopefully great writers, you know, like Dickens have inspired yeah. me to, to write. I'm never going to be as great as, as Dickens, but that doesn't matter as long as you have a go. It isn't the end result as we've been saying, and that isn't the depressing thing about commodification. It's that, as long as you try, you're on that process. The end result doesn't really matter when you're doing it. You know, it's it's the learning part. And what? also, I've often wondered what it is about Agatha Christie's work that makes it so popular. I mean, you know, why wouldn't we? Because yeah. they're phenomenally popular and always were. Um, and I think what's happening these days too is that there's there's more than more than ever there's this stress and emphasis yeah. on different genres and that's because um of this purely the need to sell books yeah. under whatever label so obviously authors become marginalized they might straddle two genres you yeah. know what i mean but 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 they'll always be placed in one and 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 often then i think some readers may be disappointed by their work because they're expecting something that they haven't quite found the problem about genres is that it can sometimes um you know disappoint a, a, a reader if they're really expecting a kind of mm. cozy almost humorous um agatha christie type novel and then my my novels are often marketed under cozy genre yeah. but they're quite dark you know yeah. um so this is an, a a new problem i think for us all uh, involved in writing and, and and selling books um bookshops and publishers like to pigeonhole um authors um and then of course you know i whitstable pearl mystery was the first fiction novel really that i'd written but i did um almost finish a book in the 80s and yeah. it was a, a black comedy okay. that involved um a, a crime and that went off and was um received very well but the the replies that my agent got back were this is kind of too literary to be <laughs> chiclet and it's it's too chiclet to be literary and so i think you know obviously we've always had that sense of uh, snobbishness really the high brow and the low brow the mainstream or the the, the literary fiction um, elements in in judging literature and and that's why i prefer to talk about storytelling a lot of the time because would dickens and mark twain be considered now um, to be literary, you know, when we when we look, as you mentioned about Shakespeare, Shakespeare was a popular dramatist. Yep. No one was more mainstream than Shakespeare. He wrote for the crowd. It's not yes. it's not highfalutin. It's not yep. it's become highbrow. We we now hold it up to be highbrow. But he was writing for those in the pit. That's exactly yeah. what he was doing. I mean, that is exactly. exactly. What he was about. Um, yeah. I I yeah we we. It's a weird world that we live in now where you suddenly get 
if it becomes popular, it somehow becomes lessened, which is weird. Yeah. You want it to be popular because you want people to, because we've got commodities, you want people to buy it. Um, it's a, yeah, I, there is a snobbery in literature. I, I, I've always uh, agreed with you on that one. Um, I think there always has been. And we don't know what will be a classic. We don't know what will resonate down, um, down our, our, um, our history. Because I think answering my own question slightly, I asked you earlier, or mused on earlier, I don't think they had any clue. Why would they? They were writing what they loved. It just became mm. that everyone else loved it. And good i think that should be the case uh we yeah. should never put you off from writing which is to come back to your point you should never hold yourself up up to someone else because everyone has a voice and everyone has something to offer and someone will find your voice and be interested in it and that's a good thing surely i would say absolutely and you know when i first started on eastenders at that particular time and it was only going out twice a week yeah. um you know i mean look at it now but um at that time it was you were asked just to take hold of these characters and that environment and to tell a story uh, uh, you know along the basis that had been agreed but in your own voice yeah and at that time i think a lot of a lot of the writers that were on there including me on the show were had been in comedy and I think that helped, you know, because although they may have been, um, you know, depressing storylines or, you know, dealt with with um, issues, serious issues, there was a lot of East End kind of wit and humour in it um, that some say may not be there as much these days. But uh, but there again, we're, we're coming back to, to this thing of, um, you know, if you're a successful writer, you may be that, and this is the irony, you may find yourself totally separated mm. from people. And people really are, they're the engine for me. They drive my writing. Um, I, I've learned so much from all sorts of people all my life. And I try to put most of it into my books in, yeah. in the form of characters. I think most writers would admit that all their characters in some ways are elements of, of themselves. Yes, but, you know, if you've had a, a varied and a rich life, you know, you've learned a lot from other people. And it's almost like a way of, of um, celebrating that in your characters and in your narratives, too. I have to say the advantage of doing this and we, we starting this for Kent Libraries has been and I, I'm guilty of it. I'm totally guilty of it you put writers on a pedestal because they see the name and they write things and you think of them as a writer. Um, uh, I have, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting one of my writing heroes at a book signing and having a bit of a conversation because he was incredibly generous with his time for the people who had gone along. You know, you get this impression that they are this thing, you know, and uh, it was Neil Gaiman. And he stopped and he talked to everyone who had come to this book signing. And it was, um, but what struck me about it, and this is going to sound really odd, was he was a person. He was just a person. He was an incredibly well-read and incredibly talented writer, but he was Neil and he just talked to you like you were you. And, and you kind of like, oh, oh, he's just like me, really. Just write some books, which is quite nice to actually encounter. So that was, that was lovely. Um, incredibly smart, but yeah, still. Um, Still nice that you're suddenly you realize that that writers are people, that we're all people. No matter what you do, at the end of the day, you are people. We're, and that makes us all very, very similar when we when we when we boil it down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're all guilty of of putting people up onto pedestals, aren't we, that we we admire and seeing them as uh, somewhat unapproachable. And 
you know, even when I worked on EastEnders at Christmas parties or at shoots, you know, I, I, I used to give a real wide berth to the actors because <laughs> I just thought, oh, they're going to think I'm a bit of a hanger on, you know, if I go up and chat to them or whatever. It was very difficult. You know, even when you were had a few drinks at a Christmas party, I'd be very respectful and, and what have you. But they, you know, why wouldn't they? I mean, they're just good people in the world and there are just some boring people in the world and it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm sure that there are plenty of very talented, boring people, but there's no reason why um, why they're not, um, you know, approachable. Really, I, I, I do I do have a difficulty with it, though. I think it's partly my working class nature. Do you know what I mean? I mean, but I, I remember um, a very posh. He's now um, a novelist, and yeah. he was the son of a very famous novelist who I knew from when he was at the National Film School in the 80s. And he was already embarking upon writing novels. And when I said to him that I was interested in writing screenplays at the time, because uh, I'd had this um, you know, short made, he said, the thing to do then is to find somebody that you really admire mm -hmm. and just write to them um, and ask them for some advice or even send them a script that you have. And I thought, Wow, what an incredible thing to do. It just seemed like so, so bold. So bold, but yeah. I, I thought about it and and so I did. And um and at the time the film With Nail and I had come oh, out. Oh right, okay. Written by Bruce Robinson. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And Bruce Robinson, who went on to to write The Killing Fields. Yeah and um, how to get ahead in advertising. And he was actually born in and grew up in Broadstairs. Oh, right. I did that. Kent, Kent man too. But at the time he was living in Southwest London. So um, I wrote him a letter and um, just asked him for some advice and everything. And he wrote back to me and he was incredibly gracious. Now, typed it. It was in before we had laptops, so it was written on, uh, typed on a typewriter with his address and everything. I think I'd, I'd sent it to his agent and he signed it at the bottom. But the last few sentences, I hope I can remember, he said something like, I know well how hard it is to get on with this caper. Most of the time, it's like trying to sharpen a pencil with a broken lead. But if you're any good, stick at it and you will succeed. You say you're a struggling screenwriter, so am I. Best of luck, Bruce Robinson. Stunning. And I've still, I, I found it just the other day in my stationery cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask a couple more questions and then we're going to wrap it up. So, a silly question, because I like silly questions. Your bookshelves, do you organise them? And if you do, how do you organise them? Yes, I do organise them. I think of myself, I mean, my desk is in a complete mess, but I'm always having to um, refer to different books. And so, I mean, apart from size, for example, on my top shelf, I have a lot of um, my um, kind of reference books. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if I look up there now, I've got Brewer's Dictionary of Phrases and Fables of Roger's. I've got um, 
all sorts of it. I've got my old book of knowledge encyclopedia, <laughs> various dictionaries, all sorts. I've also got screenwriting books, you know, things yeah. that can help me sometimes. Beneath that, I've got more dictionaries of quotations, etc. So they tend to be my non-fiction textbooks, yeah. you know, things yeah. that can help. Um, and then I have further reference books below that on places, places in London, etc. Geography. Um, I have a lot of paperbacks, usually other crime novels. Right, yeah, of course. Um, and um, they're all in one section. Um, and another section, I have all my classics, my uh, Dickens, etc. And then right at the bottom, I've got, you know, my how to how to teach yourself Italian. Right, OK. Yeah, so I do, because otherwise it would be total chaos to try and grab a book and, and, and not be able to find it. And I've got American literature in one spot, too. Because I'm a great fan of American literature. As I said, Truman Capote, yeah. there's a crime writer called um, Stephen Dobbins, who I really like. Um, I love American literature. I just wish I could write like an American. <laughs> Spark the point. I just can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how, I suppose it must be cultural. It must be just what you grow up in that can massively affect yeah. how you approach your the way that you write it's it's, it's 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 amazing how much we are shaped by our environment and the people around us actually yes absolutely and it's it's very simple direct sentences i think that we we have long held on to a tradition of the long convoluted sentence in this country you know especially in the 19th century yes it's uh why you why if you're um if you're not using 10 words when you can use one you're not trying hard enough yes. <laughs> um exactly my my more serious question um for those who are aspiring writers and uh i have felt this pain for some things that i've written i don't write proper things but i've written a few things in my time um the blank white page mm. how do you get past the dreaded blank white page or screen these days well the first thing that you must do is say to yourself that you can't just sit around waiting for inspiration to strike. You have to write because if I had done that on EastEnders, you know, well, we'd have had a, a gap of at least three years of episodes there. You know, if you if you do that, um, there's nothing like a deadline to concentrate the mind. So that always helped a lot. But then, but then I learned that you literally have to sometimes come up with mantras for yourself. And one of my favourite ones for me is, I am ready, willing and able to do this task. Sometimes repeating that several times to myself when I <laughs> feel totally unmotivated convinces me that I'm all of those things. Right. Um, and that helps. But technically, I often find that if the words just aren't coming, if you're writing a story and you're just not getting anywhere, um, either in a, you know, a, a script, a scene in a script, or on the page, your characters generally are in the wrong place. Right. Um, I always ask my characters, you know, where do you want to be? You know, I, 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 it's like you come up against a brick wall, they can't go any further. I always go back to your characters and keep asking questions of them. Right. Who are they? What are they doing right now in this scene, even if it's in a book, you know, where do they want to go? Ask yourself questions about all those characters. And if it's literally to do with plot, um, they will normally come up with a, 
an idea, if you really believe in your characters, just say, okay, you don't want to be leaving the police station at the moment or in the police station, DCI Maguire, where do you want to be? And he might say, look, it's half past five. I'd like to be in the pub. I'd like to be having a shot of tequila and a Mexican beer. And I'll say, fine, I take him there. And then suddenly we're in a different environment and he comes alive, you know, wow. and then I can reflect back about him being in the police station, but it got too boring there. So there's that. But the other thing is if you are, say just embarking upon writing a short story or a chapter in your book and it's literally nothing comes at all you know not even the first sentence um there's a great movie called uh, throw mama from the train right okay uh, billy crystal is trying to write a novel he's a he's a teacher of writing and he, he just goes on and on about the night was sultry the night was not <laughs> sultry the night was warm and balmy no no it wasn't but if you're in that kind of dilemma just put your concentration somewhere else and I, i'm looking now at a desk lamp right well, um take a break but keep writing and write whatever you can about that desk lamp okay whatever comes to mind describe it describe uh, it's got a swan neck describe that or let that curve take you somewhere else allow your imagination to come you know don't try and force it it's like otherwise i i think sometimes it's like taking all the joy out of writing it's like forcing a child to go and do its homework your brain will resist that so take 10 minutes off and and allow your brain to just enjoy writing and then come back and then deal with what you know you may be considering more as work rather than the enjoyment and the fun and the joy of writing ah oh, that, that, that's actually really good advice that makes a lot of sense um okay so really we have come to the end of our time but it's been wonderful to talk to you i will ask one last question what's next for julie ah oh, well i never quite know do i um there is <laughs> There are seven books in the Whitstable Pearl Mystery series currently, and I've just finished writing the eighth, which is called Strictly Murder. And you might guess from the title that it is actually about dancing. Yes. So um, in order to um, in order to do that, I had a lovely time last last year, sort of, you know, going to some dance lessons in Whitstable, etc. And um, I'm also thinking about other projects as, as well, but um, chiefly I'm looking forward to seeing Whitstable Pearl on TV next year. As are, we, as are we. We are really looking forward to it. It's going to be awesome. Well, I really, all I've got left to do is say thank you so much for your time. It has been a wonderfully easy conversation to have with you. And I think it's been very enlightening. Um, so um, once again, thank you for joining us on the books and we wish you all the best with the TV show and the next book. Thank you so much for inviting me and thank you most sincerely for all the work you do at our public libraries. Thank you. Well, you've got to the end of this one. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Julie as much as I enjoyed having it. Her books are available in the library now and anywhere you can find good books. The TV show will be with us this year and we can't wait. If you'd like further information on our digital services, then go to our website, kent.gov libs. If you'd like to follow us on Facebook, the page is linked below. If you fancy this as a podcast, that is also linked below. We hope you have a good day. We hope you're well. Goodbye.